Let's begin with a word of prayer. O Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. What goes through your mind when you think about the good life? What do you envision? Do you envision a nice house, a nice car, a good paycheck, lots of vacation time? If you live in Philadelphia, do you think of clean streets and less crime? What is the good life? Well, for most people in the world today, the good life is success. It's stability, it's comfort, it's happiness. And as we look at our text this evening, we find that the good life means something radically different for the Christian. We see that for the believer, the good life means seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trusting that all these things will be added unto you. The good life for the believer is a life utterly devoted to God, devoted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, devoted to love and good works, devoted to holiness, devoted to God's agenda above our agenda. The good life for the believer is a life of devotion to God, even if it costs us our very life. This is the good life, according to the Apostle Peter. What Peter wants us to know is that to follow Jesus is a lifelong endeavor. It is not, oh, I once prayed a prayer and now I've got my one-way ticket to heaven. No, for Peter, the good life means the constant pursuit of holiness, always living with the end in mind, always looking ahead to that great day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And this is why he writes this letter. He writes this letter to warn against the heresy of those who teach that we can be saved and continue living in sin. Peter writes this letter at the end of his life and he implores us to heed his warning. Jesus is coming back. That's the resounding theme of this letter. Jesus is coming back. The day of the Lord will come, the day of fire and judgment. And so therefore, put to death that which is carnal in you and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you from the outset that the Holy Spirit here in these rich pages of Scripture is not advocating for what you might call a works-based righteousness. Yes, the Apostle Peter calls us to live holy lives, but he never grounds our justification in our good works. He does not ground our declaration of righteousness in our ability to obey God. No, Peter simply grounds the call to live a life of obedience in light of who we already are in Christ. Sanctification and justification go hand in hand. We we can't have one without the other. 
As Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You see, it is not that we are justified by our works, right? Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians chapter three. The instrument of our justification is faith alone. And yet as we read in James chapter two, faith without works is dead. We are saved by faith. Good works must accompany that faith. And our confession harmonizes this relationship between faith and, fir- faith and works very well. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, it says this, uh, that good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. This reformed understanding of faith and works rightly reflects the teaching of the Bible. The view of the Roman church does not. The the Romanist understanding of faith and works collapses sanctification into justification. And we must keep those two distinct. We are justified solely through the instrument of faith because of what Jesus has done for you and me. When we die and enter into God's glory, we can only point to Christ's justifying righteousness as the basis for our heavenly inheritance. And yet the Bible teaches that those who are justified will be sanctified, that that your good works are evidence of that true and lively faith, and that if you are born again, you will necessarily do good works in Christ. And one of the joys of the Christian life is that God does, in fact, give heavenly rewards for our good works. As the Belgic Confession puts it, which is a wonderful summary of the Reformed faith, I commend it to you, it says this, God rewards our good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. God rewards our good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. And so my challenge to you this evening is to ask yourself this, how am I living out this relationship between my justification and my sanctification? How am I living out this relationship between my faith and my works? If I claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ, is my lifestyle consistent with that claim? Are the decisions that I make every day a reflection of true and lively faith. And as you ask yourself this important question, uh, you must avoid the, di- the, the ditches that are on either side here. You might be tempted to have what we might say is an overrealized view of sanctification. I can be free of all sin and I can achieve perfection in this life. That's an over-realized view of sanctification. And this will set you up for failure. Indwelling sin will remain in you until the day you die. We've just confessed this this evening in our catechism. And that doesn't give you an excuse for sin, right? You must kill your sin. But the eradication 
of all sin in your life will not occur until Christ delivers you from this body of death. Even the most godly saints that are here this evening who have walked with Jesus their whole life, they will tell you, yes, by God's grace, they have experienced progressive sanctification. But if they're honest with you, and I hope that they are, if they're honest with you, they will tell you that they continue to be at war. Make no mistake, this is spiritual warfare we're talking about. They, are, they continue to be at war with their passions and desires and will be until the day they die. That's one side we need to avoid, one side of the ditch, an an over-realized view of sanctification. The other side of the ditch is an under-realized view of sanctification. I can't change. I am who I am. I'm just a sinner. There's no hope for me in this life. And that's an under-realized view of sanctification. And the problem is that if we think in these terms, we actually deny the very essence of the gospel. We have been set free from bondage to sin. If we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. And that means that Christ gives us new affections by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the work of the Spirit in our hearts enables us to say no to sin and yes to Christ. And this is why, for example, we must not believe the lie of our enemy. For example, it, it, is, it is impossible to be a gay Christian. It is impossible to be a Christian who embraces a transgender identity. And even If you are waging war against these sins, you must not identify yourself with your sin. You you cannot call yourself a gay Christian because to do so preaches an under-realized doctrine of sanctification to a world that is perishing. Now we've read together 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 11, but this evening we're just going to focus on verses 5 through seven. And in these verses, Peter spells out the good life for every believer. And this list of virtues closely parallels the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul describes in Galatians chapter five, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what we need to remind ourselves here from the beginning is is that it is only the regenerate man who can live out this good life, right? For Paul in Galatians chapter five, only those who live by the spirit can also keep in step with the spirit. In In other words, only men and women who have experienced the new birth can walk in a worthy manner to which they have been called. The carnal man can do no such thing. The the carnal man instead hates God in his nature. He is alienated from God. He is hostile to God in his nature. And this is why the apostle Peter begins in his epistle with the indicative and moves to the imperative. This is why he begins with what God has done in us 
And only then does he proceed to call us to walk in newness of life. His divine power has granted to us, his children, all things that that pertain to life and godliness. Verse four, he has made us children of God, born not of the flesh, but of the will of God. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. You see, it is God who acts first. We love him because he loves us first. We are dead in our trespasses and God breathes new life into our hearts and he unites us to himself. And it is only in this union with Christ that we can walk in holiness. Look with me at verse five. For this very reason. What reason? For the reason that you have been united to Christ and born again to a new and living hope. For this very reason, for for this very reason that you are partakers of the divine natures, that you are united to Christ. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And as we will walk through these character traits that should be present in every Christian, I don't want you to think of these uh, chronologically. Peter's point is not that uh, these virtues proceed from one to the next. No, Peter's point is that all of these virtues, in the same way the fruit of the Spirit, notice it's not fruits, it's not these individual plural entities, it's one, it is the singular fruit which is all of these things, so it is the same here. All of these virtues must be present in every child of God. But there is a reason that Peter begins with faith and ends with love. And that's because our good works are only the result of true faith. Our good works only proceed from a true and lively faith. And our faith, of course, culminates in the cardinal virtue of love. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In verse five, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, I need to say two things about this phrase. As good reformed people who believe in doctrines like predestination and election, when we hear this imperative, make every effort, we might start to cringe a little bit because this kind of sounds like we have a part to play in the Christian life. There's work that needs to be done. And I just want to encourage you not to be more biblical than the Bible. Yes, the Bible unequivocally affirms that God sovereignly predestines us in love, right? We are not in the driver's seat when it comes to God's saving act. But the Bible also unequivocally teaches that we must use our wills to actively respond to God's grace. And we call this compatibilism. The harmony of God's sovereignty 
and our human agency. And I don't have great, great amount of time to delve into this, but I will say the Apostle Paul sets this forth most clearly, I believe, in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 13, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? In other words, get to the business of the Christian life. Exercise your will, trust and obey. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to remind us that even as we we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Back to this phrase from verse five, make every effort to supplement your faith. The second thing you need to remember about this phrase is the word supplement. It's a rare word in the Greek that was used to describe uh, a patron of Greek plays. And bankrolling these Greek plays was expensive and so this word came to mean a costly cooperation or a, a costly participation in something. And this really captures what the Apostle Peter is saying. Make every effort to have costly participation in your faith. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a costly life. It is a life of dying to self and living to Christ. There is no cheap grace or free sin in the economy of God's kingdom. You may be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous writings on cheap grace. He captures this idea well. He says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living, incarnate Jesus Christ. And so you see that cheap grace is really no grace at all. It's a false gospel. It's another gospel all together. The Christian life is costly. It cost God the blood of his only begotten son. And it cost Jesus the wrath of God for every sin that every true believer will ever commit. And it will cost you your life to pick up your cross and to follow him, to pick up your cross and to supplement your faith, to furnish your faith with all of these virtues. Well, how do we go about doing this? How do we continue to grow in sanctification? Well, firstly, Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue. What is this virtue that Peter has in mind? The world has all kinds of definitions of virtue. According to the world, to be virtuous is to have courage to be true to yourself, to follow your path, to listen to your heart. But this kind of virtue is utterly alien to the Christian faith. What is virtue according 
to the Bible? Well, it is the courage to be true to Jesus Christ rather than our fallen flesh, to follow his path instead of walking in rebellion, and to listen to his word instead of ours. And Peter says that true virtue is being like Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse three. This is the same word Peter Peter uses to speak about Jesus when he writes of him who called us to his glory and excellence. That word excellence in verse three and virtue in verse five are the same word in the Greek. And so ultimately, brothers and sisters, to be virtuous, to have a virtuous life, to have a virtuous mind, is to look like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is to be an imitator of him in all that we do. It is to have the mind of Christ. It is to be truthful, to be humble, to be loving. And not only do we pursue this Christ-likeness if we've been called to walk in a manner worthy, but, but we are called to grow also in the knowledge of him, Peter says. The soul that feeds on Christ needs to be continually nourished. The Holy Spirit in the epistle to the Hebrews speaks about milk and solid food to provide us with a great illustration about the Christian life. In Hebrews chapter five, verses 11 through 14, we find this basic idea that if you are a new Christian, you need to start with the basics, stick with the fundamentals. You need, you need milk like, like an infant who is sustained by its mother's milk. You need to spend all the time you have eating at the buffet of the rudimentary doctrines of Christ. Who is God? What is the Bible? Who is Jesus Christ? These, these kinds of questions. But as you go on in the Christian life, you must continue to grow in the knowledge of him. All the while never forgetting the basics, never straying from the milk. But you do in time need the solid food. You need the hearty meals of Christian doctrine. Election, reprobation, God's sovereignty, the problem of evil, church and state relations, Christian ethics, and so on. And by the way, these are just examples. These things are kind of uh, variables. But the point is that in your Christian life, as you mature, as you go from milk to solid food, you must never stop growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul speaks about the aim of his ministry in Colossians chapter one, verse 28. He says this, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And elders in Christ's church today carry on this mission, this apostolic mission. We not only want to see men and women, boys and girls, walk through the doors of our church and experience genuine conversion and transformation. We also long to see you who have already been saved grow 
in the knowledge of him. Continue to feast on Christ, the bread from heaven. And this is the charge, this is the apostolic charge that the church continues through the elders of the church is to present you mature in Christ as a pure virgin prepared for Christ, prepared for Christ her bridegroom, 2 Corinthians 11, verse two. And so this means that a healthy church is not just about winning souls to Christ. A healthy church certainly should be concerned about that. But a healthy church is also concerned about growing you up, growing the saints up in every way to, into Christ who is your head. Ephesians 4, verse 15. A healthy, a healthy church seeks to mature you to disciple you by applying God's whole counsel, his whole word to every area of your life. And then Peter adds self-control. We not only need to increase in the knowledge of him who saved us, but we must exercise self-restraint. To be self-controlled, to exercise self-restraint means that at times we must pause. We must be measured in our response. And this is hard for us because we live in an age where we say anything that pops into our mind. We don't filter our thoughts through the mind of Christ. We don't take every thought captive as we ought. We just say whatever comes to mind. And and as Proverbs 29 verse 11 says, reminds us it is a fool that gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So when you speak, I would encourage you to ask yourself these questions. Will this build up or will this tear down? Read all of James chapter three before you go to bed tonight. Life and death are in the power of your tongue. Restraining your tongue, restraining your thoughts, restraining your urges is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray earnestly that he would enable you to exercise self-control. Don't pray like the young Augustine once did, immature in his faith. Don't pray like him and say, give me chastity, but not yet. No, we who are partakers of the divine nature must already be killing sin. Remember that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Without self-control, you have no walls. You have no spiritual fortification. Pray earnestly, for spiritual fortification. The good life is also marked by steadfastness. And that word can also be translated patient endurance. The Christian life is a marathon in many ways. It's hard to finish well. But we must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. We, we are called to patiently endure. We look ahead to things unseen, things that we cannot yet even fathom with the naked eye. And that's hard for us at times. We live in an age of instant gratification. We have endless amounts of knowledge and information readily available to us at our fingertips. Waiting, patiently enduring is hard. Perhaps your faith has been tested by a trial. Perhaps you've lost a loved one. Perhaps you've had a child walk away from the faith. Perhaps the world has just seemed a little bit darker these past few years. But steadfastness means that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the things that are above. We keep our eyes fixated on Jerusalem above. And while we await the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must lead a peaceful and quiet life, as the Apostle Paul says. We must run the race with endurance, pursue holiness. And this is, as I've said, that one of the central themes of Second Peter, to, to press on, to continue to patiently endure, pursuing the Lord in all holiness, because that great day awaits. It's okay for us to grieve at the sinfulness of sin. It's okay for us to be, for our hearts to be heavy as we experience the pangs of death. Jesus wept at the pangs of death. But remember that Jesus is coming back to destroy death forever. He is coming back to bring vengeance upon the evildoer and to make all things new. Jesus will return in blazing glory, we're told in Revelation. He will return in his blazing glory and terrify the nations in his fury. Jesus himself says to you today, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22. If you have sown in tears in this life, I would encourage you to take heart that one day you will reap with shouts of joy when Jesus takes you home. Psalm 126, you who go out weeping in this life shall enter into your eternal home if you are steadfast until the end. You shall enter into your eternal home with shouts of joy. You will reap in tears in this life, but then you shall enter in with shouts of joy on a note of victory, on a note of triumph. And so press on, patiently enduring to the end. Well, we, we not only must patiently endure, but we are to pursue godliness. And you might be wondering how godliness is different from virtue, virtue meaning being like Christ in verse five. How, how, is, how is godliness different here from virtue? Well, it's, godliness is different here in that it has an external component. Godliness is an aroma, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermon on this passage describes this godliness as an aroma, as, as being chiefly concerned with the glory of God in all things, in all conversations, in all conduct, in every facet of your human life. The result of godliness is that we become this, this fragrance, this, this smell, this aroma of Christ. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this aroma which you and I are to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Sometimes we feel embarrassed about pursuing godliness. We may think to ourselves, oh, I'm not one of those Christians. I'm not one of those Bible-thumping Christians uh, who would cancel their Disney Plus account because they have shows on there that promote immorality for children. I'm not one of those Christians. And of course, I'm not saying that godliness always means you cancel your TV subscription service. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we should relentlessly pursue the things of God. We should relentlessly be more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. God wants us to set our minds on things that are above. He wants us to be concerned chiefly with his glory and he wants that aroma to be smelt by all who experience fellowship with us. And so as you reflect on godliness in your life, um, I would invite you to ask yourself this question, which I think can help, help you identify what it is that you love. Ask yourself this, where, where am I spending my time? Am I spending more time passively being formed by the fleeting things of this world, by the entertainment of this world? Or am I spending my time actively engaging in growth and maturity in godliness? Too often we we sacrifice our pursuit of holiness on the altar of relatability. We, 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 We are often tempted to think that if we could just relate more to the world, we could win more souls to Christ. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his sermon on this passage, nothing could be farther from the truth. Dr. Lloyd-Jones reminds us that unbelievers regard the holiness that is taught in the New Testament as something utterly distasteful, something narrow. Well, finally, our faith must be supplemented with brotherly affection and with love. If our faith is genuine, we need to love one another. In John chapter four, verses 20 and 21, we read these words. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. Brothers and sisters, we especially within the church, we we especially must not be walking contradictions on this point. We must be the very embodiment of Christ's love. We must be the hands and feet of Christ as we seek to respond to his call on our lives. We must not claim to love God and and then be at each other's throats. Too often we allow uh, these worldly dynamics to enter and infiltrate into, into the fellowship of our church. We categorize one another into these, these boxes and we make sweeping judgments of one another. We say things like, oh, that, that person's politically liberal, therefore everything they say is useless. Or we say that, that person is politically conservative, therefore everything they say is useless. And brothers and sisters, that is an entirely carnal, worldly way of thinking. It is no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That dynamic within the fellowship of Christ's body to to fit one another into boxes and to categorically place judgments and impute motives, that kind of thinking is the work of our enemy. It is diabolical. He seeks to stir up division within the church. He loves nothing more and for rivalries and dissensions to destroy our fellowship and our love. The better way is the way of brotherly affection, bearing with one another, listening to one another, rebuking one another, exhorting one another, teaching one another, and all in a spirit of love. And love is where Peter rests his case. The cardinal virtue of the Christian life. Love sums up all that we attain to. And our faith will finally grow into that perfect love, the perfect love of our triune God in glory where one day we will be enfolded into the fullness and triunity of his blessed love. And in this season of Advent, as we think of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed in his incarnation, may we be reminded that in one sense, he alone has lived the good life. Only Jesus Christ could pay the penalty for our sin because he alone lived the good life, the perfect life. He was sinless and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so let me encourage you, though you are called, as the Apostle Peter has called us to do so, though you are called to grow in looking more like Jesus Christ, rest in his finished work, rest in the, in the promise and reality that he has already secured your eternal salvation if you trust in him. His perfect righteousness is applied to you As a credit, your your debits have all been paid in full. His perfect life 
is the only reason that you and I can have the good life. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for your precious promises that are real to us in Christ. Thank you that you have made us divine partakers of the divine nature. Thank you that you have united us to Christ and that we are those who can now walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So give us your Holy Spirit. Energize us by the power of the Spirit to continue to press on in the Christian life to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And give us a spirit of love here in this church that the aroma of Christ would be palpable to all who encounter us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.